I'd like to begin with a question. It's a true or false question, and um, I'm going to ask for the screen to be turned on in the back so I can be sure to see it. But as I begin this morning, I want to begin with this question, and there it is on the back as well. True or false? Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven. Is that true or false? That is true. That is true. One courageous person here this morning. But a person once disputed this with me, and so I have researched these following statistics. Listen to this. Jesus referred to the eternal destiny of the lost twice as much as he did the eternal destiny of the saved. In the Gospel of Matthew, for every verse that Jesus spoke about on heaven, there are three where he spoke about hell. And then I want you to think about these truths. The Greek word which is translated hell is found 12 times in the New Testament. Obviously, there are many ways of referring to eternal judgment. But the word itself is found 12 times. Jesus used the word 11 of the 12 times. He spoke of hell more often than anyone else in the Bible. And hell is just as real as heaven. One cannot be denied without denying the other. Now, this is actually shocking. It's surprising. If we were not to read it off of the pages of Scripture, we would say it's hard to even believe. Why did Jesus do this? Well, I think there are three reasons at least. Number one, Jesus created hell. All things were made by Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. The all things includes hell. Number two, Jesus is the one who will send people there. He said in Matthew 25, 41, there will be many to whom He says, depart into the eternal fire. And so the third reason for this is Jesus wants us to take hell very, very seriously. Yet in spite of these facts, many people do not believe in the danger of eternal judgment. Our America's greatest pastor, theologian, put it this way. He said, almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. Those are the words of Jonathan Edwards. Do you know who is often the most like this? You ready? Good people. Good people are often the most like this. Now, the Jews of the first century were very religious people. They would have said, we're God's chosen people. We have the law of Moses. We are pretty good people. And yet, the Apostle Paul wrote and said... The good people were just as much under the judgment of God as the pagan Gentiles. And we say, how can that be? How can good people be under God's judgment? Well, that's what we want to see this morning as we turn again to the book of Romans. Today, we are turning to Romans chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16. 
And as we do, uh, we're going to look at this subject of what the Bible says about God's judgment. We might uh, have an alternative title, Why Good People Are Also Under Judgment. And Paul is going to give us the reasons. Let's take a moment, shall we, and bow together as we consider what God says. Father, perhaps there is no message that is more important to be made clear in our day than this message. We in America have been blessed with so much. We've had the truth for so long. There are still churches on so many corners in our cities. And yet somehow we think, because we know these things, we will escape judgment. Teach us today what your judgment is all about, that we might realize how desperately we need Christ. In His name, Amen. Let's begin with the first truth that we learn about God's judgment, that God's judgment will go below the surface. Look at verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now the first question we have to ask as we open this chapter is, who is the you of verse 1? Therefore you have no excuse, O man. It appears to be a Jew because down in verse 17 The Apostle Paul identifies the you as a Jew. Now, you know what we would say today? We would say today, this is a reference to a moral person. This person would very possibly attend church. They might know a great deal about the Bible. They would live a clean and moral life. And they would largely obey the law and be a good citizen. And you know what they would be appalled at? They would be appalled at the list of sins we read last week in verses 24 to 32 of chapter 1. And they would fully agree with verse 2 that says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now we need to stop here for just a moment and examine two faulty thought processes that good people have that cause them to think God would never judge me. Number one, they think we are not like that. Did you notice what verse 2 says? God's judgment rightly falls on those, right? 
those people who practice such things. And the such things clearly refers to the such things back in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And the moralist, the good person, would read the list and say, boy, I'm not that bad. I'm not perfect, but I'm not evil like that. And then the moralist, the good person, would say this, God is blessing me, so why in the world would He judge me? Look at verse 4 again. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Here's what the good person says. I've got a good marriage. My kids are are pretty good. They're doing well. The neighbors, they like me. And at work, I'm respected as well as anybody else. Let me ask you, according to Paul, you know what that's a result of? That's a result of God's kindness. It is God's kindness that has blessed you with all of those things. And you know what those very things can do? Paul says in verse 4, those very things can cause us to presume on God's kindness. He won't judge me. And it can cause us to harden our hearts according to verse 5 and dismiss our need of salvation. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. I'm okay. Do you know Jesus talked about somebody exactly like this? You might recall in Luke 18, uh, Jesus called, talked about the Pharisee. And in verses 11 to 12, look what the Pharisee said as he stood praying. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You want to know what? This was probably true. What he says here was probably an accurate picture of him. He was a morally upright person. But did you notice what it's doing to him? You see what it's doing to him? He's hard, self-righteous, proud, boastful. I don't need repentance. You remember what Jesus did? He condemned him. Jesus said God rejects him. He will be judged. And we say, why? Why? Well, in reality, He and all of us practice the very same things we judge in others. Did you notice that said twice? Look at the end of verse 1. He says, we practice the very same things. And look again at verse 3. We do the very same things ourselves. 
And can't you just hear somebody protesting, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't do those things. And you know what Paul would say to us? Well, maybe not on the surface. But how about below the surface? Um, I want to ask you a question this morning about this iceberg that I have on the screen. By the way, I took a picture of this down at Lower Harbor. That's where I found this, okay? But I want to ask you, um, what percentage of it is above the waterline? You know what scientists say? 10%. 90% of this iceberg is below the water. That's why it was able to take down the Titanic. And you know, people are exactly the same. On the surface, we look really, really great. But that's only 10%. Now, let's look at us below the surface. What a different picture, right? There's my thoughts. There's my emotions. My control center is below the surface. How much does God see? Just 10%? He sees 100%. He sees our sinful thoughts. He sees our corrupt emotions. He sees the motivations that come from the control center of our life. All of us know that our actions stem from our motivations. Sinful motives are always and every time the root of sinful actions. I remember very vividly one occasion as a teenager where a sinful opportunity was presented to me. And I have to say, I wanted that very much. But I was embarrassed to do it. And had I not been embarrassed... I would have done what was offered to me. Think about this. God knew I wanted to sin even when I did not sin. You know, we often suffer from a superficial view of sin, don't we? We see sin in such a superficial way, but God judges the motives as well as the actions. How many think this morning, if God goes below the surface of your life, He'll find something to judge? How many think that? Of course, we know it's true. You see, God's judgment is below the surface. Let's look at the next thing we learn about the judgment of God. Secondly, God's judgment will have how much evidence? Plenty. Look at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. 
But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now, verse 7 and 10 seem to suggest that there are some people who are really good and do not deserve judgment. And you say, Pastor, Paul seems almost to be contradicting himself. Well, let me tell you what I think is going on here. Paul is not talking about how we get saved, but he's talking about how people are judged. That's the point he's making. And look at verse 7. He describes people who will not be judged as being patient in well-doing. You know what that means? It means persistency in doing right. Uh, you know what the Apostle Paul is probably telling us here? That if you want to be judged uh, and misjudgment according to your works, you have to do good perfectly all the time. That's what he's saying. Remember what Jesus said? If you want to stand before God on the basis of your own works, you shall be, what? Perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And Paul is going to later make it very clear, nobody persistently does the right thing. When we get to chapter 3, he'll say, none is righteous, not even one. No one seeks after God. We've all gone out of the way. All of us together have become worthless. There's a note in the NIV study Bible that I think helps us understand what Paul is doing here. He's focusing upon how we are judged, not how we would be saved. Listen to what the note says. If anyone persists in doing good, that is, lives a perfect life, he or she will receive eternal life. But no one can do this. But if anyone could... God would give him or her life since God judges according to what a person does. But instead, look at verse 6. There will be plenty of evidence that not a single one of us lived a perfect life. He will render to each one according to to his works. That's actually a quotation from a verse in Proverbs. That verse, verse 6, is quoted in Proverbs 24.12. I want you to read this verse with me, and let's read it in the New Living Translation together. Join me, and, and let's read it. Don't excuse yourself by saying, look, we didn't know. For God understands all hearts, and He sees you. He who guards your soul knows you knew. He will repay all people as their actions deserve. Do you see that? He sees you. He knows you knew. He will repay. I did a little reading this week, discovered some interesting things about us. 
On the average day, the average person speaks enough words to fill a 50-page book. At the end of the week, all of us have spoken enough words in one week to fill a book of 350 pages. At the end of a year, we have all spoken enough to fill 52 books of 350 words each. How many of you would like to have those books published? How many thoughtless words, crosswords, mean, impatient, harsh, foolish, crude? And then think about this. Psychologists say that in any one day, 10,000 thoughts go through the human mind. Think of that. By the end of this 24 hours, if this is an average day, we will have thought 10,000 thoughts. You know what that is? That's 3,500,000 thoughts a year. How many would like to have those thoughts published? How many unkind? How many lustful? How many self-serving? How many envious? If you are like me, you've had times in your life when you have thought something bad about someone, only later to discover that you were wrong. And if you're like me, you say to yourself, I'm sure glad they didn't know my thoughts. I'll never forget one day I was at McDonald's uh, over near Chicago, and a guy cut in line in front of me. And I was just thinking daggers before him. He was of a different race, and I thought, all right, you know, this is racism towards the white guy, and I'm just thinking all these very bad thoughts. And then, you know what I later learned? He thought I had already been waited on. And he apologized. And I thought, what a heel. What a heel I am. I'm so grateful that he didn't know what I was thinking. But look again at this. God sees. He knows we knew. And He will repay. Does anyone think here today, if God looks below the surface, He will not find enough to judge us? I think we all know. But now I want you to notice the third thing about God's judgment. Number three. God's judgment will have credible witnesses. Credible witnesses. If you've been following along, you notice that this whole section here is like a court scene. We're all in God's courtroom. God is the judge. There's plenty of evidence. Now all we need is the witnesses. 
The witnesses. And so enter the witnesses. And I want you to notice that someday there are going to be three witnesses that will testify they are God's law, our conscience, and Jesus Himself. And I want you to pick these out as I read through verses 12 to 16. You follow and pick them out. And notice these are going to be the witnesses in God's courtroom. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it is the doers who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Look at the three witnesses. The word law here that I've just read for you in verses 12 to 15 occurs 11 times. 11 times. And did you notice that Paul says, even people who do not have a Bible have an innate sense of right and wrong. When somebody who is raised in paganism does what is right, what that reveals is God has placed that innate sense of right and wrong within them, thus they sin against that internal law that God has placed in their hearts. All of us know that Nineveh was one of the most wicked cities of the ancient world. The book of Jonah is all about it where God said, I'm going to wipe them out because they're so wicked. Do you know when archaeologists began digging in the ancient ruins of Nineveh, they came upon a library of plaques containing the laws of the realm. One law in Nineveh was this, that if anyone was guilty of neglect, they would be held responsible for the results of their neglect so that in Nineveh, if you fail to teach your child to obey or to respect other people's property, you as their parents would be held responsible for the neglect of your children. Now I ask you, where did the most wicked people on the face of the earth get that understanding? God placed it in their hearts. The wicked Ninevites knew right from wrong because God put it in their hearts. Look at the second witness. It's our conscience. Our conscience. Verse 15 is an excellent description of the conscience. The conscience is what Paul describes as that characteristic within us 
that has conflicting thoughts that either accuse us or excuse us. That is an excellent definition of the conscience. The word conflicting here is a word that actually means between or betwixt so that our conscience goes back and forth arguing with us over what is the right behavior, the behavior that is excused versus the behavior that is accused. Do you know the conscience is the reason why we know we've done wrong even before we're caught? When I was a child growing up, I would tell my mother what I had done wrong before she even asked me. It always was strange to me. Why am I doing this? She hasn't even asked me, what have you done? And I would walk into the house and say, Mom, let me tell you what I did. My conscience was bothering me. Do you know some criminals actually express relief when they are arrested? Tonight I'll be preaching this message at the prison twice. I ask you to pray for the prisoners. And I'm going to say this to them. There are actually some criminals who, after they are arrested, have expressed relief because their conscience was eating away at them. And then thirdly, notice the last witness. It's going to be Jesus Himself on that day, and He's describing the future day of judgment at the great white throne, Paul says, He will judge the secrets of men. Jesus will be the final judge. And He will be very, very effective because He knows all of our secrets. Let me ask you, why do we keep secrets? Why do we want people to know certain things? It's because we know they're wrong. And we don't want to get caught. Why are there college students when the first time they get away from their parents at a college, like even here at NMU, they go berserk? Why? Because they think, ah, my parents will not know. Why do we hide things from our spouse? Because we don't want to get caught. Because we know what we've done is wrong. But look at what this says. Jesus knows it all. There is no secrets. We'll never be able to hide from Him. As a teenager, this single truth alone changed my life. I was like a lot of young people today. I was a squirrely kid. I didn't pay attention. I didn't listen. And I was headed in the wrong direction. And then one day, it zapped me that God knows everything about me. I can get away with certain things from my parents. My pastor won't know certain things. My youth leaders won't know certain things. But God knows everything. And when that happened, I repented. I came to Jesus Christ. And He changed my life. And I've never been the same since. 
That single truth alone that Jesus knows all my secrets and if I'm not saved, if I'm not a part of the family of God, if I haven't been forgiven, I haven't got a chance on Judgment Day. That changed my life. I have a pastor friend who uh, met a woman who said she had never sinned. First time in his life he had ever encountered somebody who said, I have never sinned. What would you do with a person like that? You know what he finally did? He finally said, have you ever complained about anything? She said, yes I have. Then he read this verse to her. Philippians 2.14 Do all things without complaining and disputing. And when she saw that, she agreed. I've sinned. I've sinned. I want you to think about this. She was not a Christian, she didn't know the Bible. She was filled with her own self-righteousness. But when she saw this truth, her conscience said, it's true. And she saw herself as she truly was. And that's what you have to do. That's what I have to do. I have to come to the place where I stop taking pride in the 10% above the surface that everyone else thinks is so wonderful. And I have to look at the 90% below the surface, those thoughts, those emotions, those motivations, and I have to see myself for who I am. And when I do, Jesus is ready to receive He's ready to cleanse, and He's ready to save. I thought it was so interesting, as the Nelsons were sharing with us earlier, that they said it often takes four years for someone in the Czech Republic to process all of this. Four years to come to the place where they say what the Bible is saying is true about me. And Christ is the only answer. Let me ask you, how many years has it taken for you? How many years has it taken for you to say, this is who I am and I need Christ? He alone died for me and rose again for me. He alone can save and cleanse and forgive. I repent. And I come to Him. I did that as a teenager. Won't you do it now? Let's bow in prayer together.
as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. I hope you see that without Christ, you don't have a chance. I hope whatever self-righteousness is within you, whatever morality you have, whatever goodness you produce, how much other people respect you and like you, I hope you see it's not enough. It will not satisfy God. He knows the rest. Your deepest, darkest, dirtiest secret, He knows. But He loves you so much, He sent Jesus to die for you and rise again from the dead. He cried out, It is finished, paid in full. And He satisfied God's just demands against you. And Jesus stands ready to receive, to cleanse, to forgive. But you have to see yourself first. And turn in repentance and faith to Him. May no one who ever attends Bethel Baptist Church end up lost because they were not warned. May no one ever come here week after week after week and not hear the reality of what God sees in them. And today, if you have not come to Christ, may you make haste to Him. May you come now and in your heart say, Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm everything that You know I am. Beneath the surface, I'm a sinner. But I believe You're the perfect Son of God who came to this world. You died and rose again for me. I turn from my way My way that says I'm good enough. And I turn to You. Come into my heart and be my Savior. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Forgive me of all my sins. Give me eternal life. Make me a child of God. And Lord Jesus, from this day forward, knowing how much I will continue to need You. I will follow You with all my heart. God helping me. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Father, draw boys and girls and men and women to Yourself. Do the work that only you can do, opening blind eyes, softening hard hearts, drawing people to the living Christ. For his sake we pray.
Amen.